Good morning. Uh, good morning to all of you. Good morning to those of you who are watching online, live and on demand. And uh, I've got some water there because last night I, I had two coughing fits while I was <laughs> preaching. So I've got a little bit of a cold of some kind. I, I did get tested and uh, everything's okay. Not going to make anybody sick. Um, but anyways, uh, yeah, love, love that video. When, when I came in uh, 1997. I started in February of 1997. Uh, Mike was in the youth group already, and uh, and Stephanie later in that year joined uh, the Five Oaks youth group, and uh, and then I've watched watched them as they've had children, and now their kids are in youth group. Some of their kids are in youth group, and it's just been so so exciting to see those generations and his passion and their passion for our church, and. Uh, and so as my kids were growing up, they had Mike to look up to in, in youth group. And uh, not as he was not in youth group, but as he was one of the leaders. And I've just been so blessed by their family and their lives. And, um, and so they're, you know, this is what this whole series is about. Is it's that kind of a blessing, being able to, to bless people. So this is the last weekend of our campaign. I want to talk about that in a few moments before we jump into, the path, in, into today's sermon. And so uh, as you walked in, as Jonathan said, you got a little bit of a packet. And um, what, we're, what we're doing today is giving you a commitment card for you to take home and pray about. This is a no pressure type of thing. We're not asking you to turn this in today. Uh, hopefully you have been praying about it and you'll go and you'll discuss and really important on this card, let me just uh, explain something. So th we launched this campaign a year ago. This is a new initiative right in the middle of the campaign to encourage, uh, to try to reach our end goal. We launched this right in the middle of COVID. We had about 40% of our people back. We reached 70% of our goal. Those of you who have been around, you've seen the major changes that have happened from the time you walk in to the time... You, uh, you come into our entry area. Uh, you've heard the stories of some of our uh, impact partners that we've impacted from Woodbury Elementary School to a new uh, partner with Hope Academy in Minneapolis in the Phillips neighborhood there. You've heard many of the stories of what's happened as a result of that giving. Uh, but we want to try to reach that last $500,000. There's some things that we still want to accomplish. Uh, including being able to pay off another debt note, uh, that other paying off that other one freed up twenty thousand dollars in this year's budget. We can free up another twenty thousand dollars, which goes towards uh, strengthening our financial foundations, and it's been exciting to see that happen. Uh, so, on this card, it explains a couple of things. Everything you need to know really is on this card, uh, but read it carefully uh, because. What we're asking here is if this is a new blessed commitment. So many of you have already given, and we just thank you for that, and we're not uh, trying to pressure you to give any more. Uh, but we are asking everyone to pray because some people uh, were disconnected last fall. Uh, some of you were wondering about what was going to happen to your own work and to your own finances, and maybe you held back a little bit because of that. Uh, some of you are new to Five Oaks, and we're not, you know, if you're really new to Five Oaks, we're not trying to put any pressure on you, but we are inviting you if, if this seems like, the, yeah, this is a church that is, uh, is doing the kinds of things we want to see happen, and we want to see it continue in that way. We're inviting you to join in with us as well. But on this card, you give us if this is a new blessed commitment, like you have not made a commitment already, and you're letting us know for the next 14 months what you're, gonna, what you're committing to give, or you have an additional to what the commitment you already made. These cards are important because they help us plan, and it helps us know uh, with some uh, sense of assurance of how much or confidence, how much is still coming so we can make plans uh, and adjust things that need to be adjusted, and we've done that along the way. We've made adjustments along the way. So, uh, we invite you to, to do that. Now, you can turn this card in next week. We, we're asking if you could have it in by October 18th. Uh, that would be fantastic. You can turn it in into one of our offering boxes. Uh, you can mail it. There is a mailer in there. 
you can go on this brochure and there is a QR code and that'll take you to a place where you can make your commitment online. So there's an online commitment card. So you can go there and, and do that. And so, again, we're asking you to, to pray, to discuss, and as God leads you, that you would uh, give as God leads you. Now, we do have uh, some good news to, to share with you. So we have a $500,000 goal, and one of the families who was already giving has decided uh, to give an additional $100,000, which means we are, we're 20% of the way there which uh, is an encouragement to me. I hope it's an encouragement to you as well. And we look forward to seeing, um, seeing what God is going to do. I have shared over and over again in this, and I'm going to say it again. The financial figure is important because of what it accomplishes. But we don't reach that financial figure. It's a bump in the road. But participation by a church family, the health that that expresses, the generational outlook that that expresses is to me the most important thing. So it's not a matter of giving a big gift. It's a matter of joining us and participating with us. Uh, and uh, we invite you, we invite you to do that. So giving is one of the ways that we express that kind of health. And as God leads you, we invite you to join us in that. Just a reminder, uh, this campaign is about creating a more welcoming environment for people who come to Five Oaks. Uh, many times searching for God. We're going to talk about that uh, specifically today. It's also uh, about retooling certain areas of ministry. So Mike and Stephanie talked about the retooling of the gym and what we hope that can happen in there. It's about our financial foundations and it's about our ministry partners and partnering with them. Take the card, pray talk, turn it in by October 18th, uh, if God leads you to give towards this. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into today's sermon. Father, we thank you for our church. I thank you for Mike and Stephanie, for their family. I thank you for all the families who give of themselves in service, uh, in giving, in just welcoming and loving people. Uh, in our congregation, in representing our congregation out in a, uh, a broken and, and pain-filled world, uh, bringing your love, bringing your grace, uh, bringing tangible help to so many people. We thank you, Father. I thank you for that. Uh, it's a blessing to me, and I pray, Father, that we would continue as a church to be a blessing to our world. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to tell you a story uh, that I think... Uh, captures the wonder that is the church. And it starts way back in the maybe mid to late 1980s. It's from a church where I served as associate pastor before I came here in 1997. Uh, but what took place was a little bit before I went there. Uh, so I got to hear the story by, you know, told by the person who experienced that story. So it was a particular Sunday morning worship service, and to anyone who was attending that service that day, it would have seemed like a, just a regular worship service. There was nothing unusual about it. About the only thing that would have been unusual for the regular attender to that church would have been that everything was especially full that weekend. And it would have been hard, if you showed up just a few minutes late, it would have been hard to find a place to sit. Um, the song leader led uh, the congregation in hymns, uh, the choir sang, uh, the congregation took communion together, they heard the wor word being given, uh, people for whom it helps were taking notes uh, on the note sheet that was given to them, all of that was happening. What n no one really knew was that there was someone sitting in the second row on that particular Sunday, right by the doors where the choir would enter in processional at the beginning of a service, who was sweating <laughs> and white-knuckling it during the whole service, just kind of holding on uh, to his chair or holding on when he was standing to the seat right in front of him. He was a committed agnostic. He didn't know whether or not God existed, but he was committed to being an agnostic. He was not 
uh, anywhere near to being a Christian or even interested in becoming a Christian. But God was at work in his life. And by Tuesday, he was kneeling in his, in his own basement, praying to receive Christ as his Savior and as his Lord, as his God. He was giving his life to Christ. His name was Mike. And I got to know Mike in the early 90s uh, when I was given, I think, leadership over uh, some other ministries. One of those ministries was a ministry that he led, which was a uh, recovery group for recovering alcoholics uh, that our church uh, led during that time. So uh, that worship service, like I said, there was nothing very special, but every person who was there that day was part of an epic drama that was happening in Mike's life. It was about bringing a man who didn't know whether God existed to his knees in worship of the God who loves him and was offering him grace. Every person worshiping that day was a part of that epic drama simply by gathering and by participating in what was happening in that worship service. When we gather for worship each week, it's ordinary and it's extraordinary at the very same time because God is at work in the lives of those who gather. He's at work in their lives as they come in, before they come in, he's at work in their lives after they leave. And when the gospel is proclaimed, when the word is taught, when the story is told, God's story is told, extraordinary things happen. People's lives are changed. And sometimes the people whose lives are changed are people who don't know God personally and don't know his story or don't believe in his story and their lives are changed. The problem is that we, we can very easily get caught up in the ordinariness of it. It's like the thing that we do week in and week out. And we forget that God is at work and that he's at work in extraordinary ways just through the ordinary rhythms of worship gathered as we've gathered together for worship. It's a problem because when we just get caught up in the ordinary and we forget about the extraordinary, we don't take advantage of the extraordinary. Uh, we don't take advantage of the fact that there are people in our lives that we have relationships with that are searching and asking questions. And we don't think to invite them in to this ordinary, extraordinary experience of God's people worshiping together. And sometimes we just miss the wonder of things that are happening around us. Sometimes we miss the opportunity when we just think it's ordinary to maybe have that conversation with someone who happens to be in the service, who happens to be searching for God, and is looking for a place that is going to be welcoming, not overly friendly, but welcoming, and, uh, and just start a basic conversation with them. Acknowledge that they are there and acknowledge that they are a person and ask them some questions about themselves. So that's, that's the problem, is that we get caught up in the ordinary and we miss opportunities. But what would happen if we were more aware of the fact that God draws people who don't know him to himself through the worship of the church gathered. What would happen if we, we actually understood that gathering to worship and experiencing that is one of the ways that people who are seeking God are actually drawn into a relationship with God. The power of gathered worship for bringing people into a relationship with God is a significant thread that is actually running through the whole Bible. And that's what I want to do today. I want, to, I want to show you this because a lot of Christians aren't aware. Hopefully, if you've been at Five Oaks for a while, you are aware. You might even be able to walk through part of this that I'm going to share with you today. Uh, but we always need the reminder of what God is up to. So I want to invite you right now to turn to Psalm 98 because we, we believe that we can open the Bible and we can read it. It doesn't have to be a mystery to us. Psalm 98, if you have... Uh, if you can, at home, uh, get a Bible. If you don't have one here, you can grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you. If you're using a phone or tablet device, we are using the NIV, so you can follow along in, what, uh, in the translation that we're using. So uh, in this series, uh, which is called Recapturing the Wonder That Is the Church, and this is the last week, we've been looking at four realizations that help us recapture the wonder. And as I've been explaining each week, it's one sermon, 
with four points, and each week is one of the points. So we're on the fourth point right now. So the fourth realization that helps us recapture the wonder that is the church is that we get to witness when we worship together as God's church. We get to witness. And I'm using that word witness from uh, places in Scripture like in Acts 1.8 where it calls, Jesus calls his followers to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. So um, I'm going to take you through a journey through the Bible right now, uh, just kind of scratching the surface of it, but we're going to take this journey through the Bible, showing you this oftentimes neglected thread that people don't even realize is there uh, in the Bible. So we're going to begin with the Great Commission. Uh, Great Commission is a, a name that, uh, that Christians have given to something that happens in Scripture. It's, it's this, uh, it occurs five times uh, in all four Gospels and then in the book of Acts where Jesus commissions his followers uh, to uh, go into all the world, to be witnesses for him, go to the ends of the earth, starting right where they are and go to the ends of the earth, and to make disciples. And so we call it the Great Commission. But the Great Commission didn't begin with Jesus. Jesus didn't come up with something that was new. There was a new element to it, and we'll talk about what that new element was. One little element, but very important element that Jesus brought to it. But the Great Commission himself goes way back. And uh, it goes back, as many of you know, to Genesis chapter 12. So 12th chapter in the Bible, where God commissions Abraham uh, to become, to go, and to become this nation that is going to bless the world. And so here's, here's what it says. I'm going to turn this a little bit. The Lord has said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So he calls Abraham, he calls the, the nation of Israel. This is the, the calling of the nation of Israel uh, through all his descendants. Uh, he calls them to be a blessing. I'm going to bless you, but your purpose is to bless others. And this, this commission is repeated over and over again in the life of Abraham, and then it pops up over and over again all throughout the Old Testament. And again, I think uh, in the church at large, most people are unaware that the Great Commission goes all the way back this far and runs throughout the whole Old Testament. So the question is, how was it that Israel would be this blessing? What kind of instructions did God give to Israel that would end up being a blessing to the whole world? Now, we know at the, from this standpoint that ultimately it's pointing to Christ, a descendant of Abraham. But all throughout the Old Testament, this is a really important point, and it is emphasized over and over again, and God gives very specific instructions on how to bless the nations. God offers clear instructions. Israel was to be, if I were to summarize it, I would say it this way, Israel was to be a city on a hill shining in the darkness that would attract the nations to come and see. And they would be impacted. And so how was that to happen? The first thing that was needed to happen was that they would be living justly and righteously. So we did a justice series a few months ago. And on, I think it was week one, I think it was week one or week two, we traced this theme that begins with Abraham and then runs through the whole Old Testament and right to the time of Jesus and Jesus is speaking. And this is theme of justice and righteousness. They're put together over and over and over again. It's given to Abraham. It's given to, uh, to David. It's given uh, by the prophets when they come and they tell the kings, that they are not doing what God has called them to, and to return to justice and righteousness. And that justice is a restorative justice. It's, it's trying to create, uh, trying to bring into the world the shalom, the, the peace, uh, the rightness that God created the world to be, to be representatives of that for God. 
And so even when the law is given in Deuteronomy chapter 4, this also occurs in Exodus, before the law is given, before the Ten Commandments are given, uh, God explains to the people of Israel, I want you to live by this because by living in this way, people are going to look at you and they're going to say, what an incredible God you have. And so even in giving the law, there is this, this sense of the people's uh, being drawn, attracted, coming to see what is this God, who is this God? Well, it worked, and, um, and it worked in different ways. So uh, uh, another way that Israel could attract the nations to come and see was by just being recipients of God's instruct, uh, miraculous signs and wonders. And so you have the people of Israel experience, and the Egyptians experience the ten plagues, God's miraculous signs and wonders. And then Israel leaves, and Israel crosses through the sea as God parts the sea, right? Walking through that sea were the descendants of Abraham and a bunch of other people. And, and in Numbers, it tells us it wasn't all just descendants of Abraham. It was a whole bunch of other people from other nations, including Egyptians, who had seen the power of God and had been drawn in and had decided to leave Egypt as well and to join the people of God. And they become part of the people of God. Israel would also win over many of the nations by incorporating the people who came to see, incorporating immigrants. And so one of the ways that Israel would do this um, uh, was as people came to see, there was all these laws in the Old Testament that talked about how important it is to treat the stranger, the alien, the person who is in your midst from other countries, in the same way that you treat your fellow Israelites, with justice and righteousness. And many of them would catch on, and they would become Jews as well. They would become followers of the God of Israel. And so Israel, in the Old Testament, is a much more diverse nation than most of us imagine. Just some of the, some of the names uh, that you would maybe recognize if you're familiar with the Old Testament, uh, people who were not Israelites but had a big impact in God's story and in blessing the nations were people from the nations, people like Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, who helped Moses in his leadership. Uh, people like Caleb, uh, one of the two, two, two spies of the twelve, who went into the promised land and came back and reported Let's believe God and let's go in. And the other ten said, no, they're giants and they're going to overtake us. Caleb was not a descendant of Abraham. His brother Othniel is the first judge in Israel before things go really, really bad. And the judges even turn bad in Israel. And you can read that story in the book of Judges. Rahab and Ruth, two important people in the story, both ancestors of King David, not Israelites. Uriah, uh, one of David's mighty men, who shamed David by being more concerned with what was happening in Israel and what was happening in the battles that were taking place as David is holding back and is concerned only for himself and is having an affair with his wife. Bathsheba, that wife, the mother of Solomon, not a descendant of Abraham. Those are just some of the famous names of countless others that were incorporated into Israel. And Israel was this, this diverse nation of descendants of Abraham and immigrants who had moved in and come from all around the world. But one other way that Israel was called to bless the nations and win people over to God surprises a lot of people, uh, seem to be unaware of it. And that is they were called to bless the nations through their worship, specifically their temple worship. And so time and time again, they're told to bless the nations through the, through the temple worship. And the idea that you recognize, if you think about the historical situation, that the Psalms are Israel's worship songbook. It's, it's their individual prayer book, but it's also the Psalms were the Israelites' songbook that they used. They put music to it, and they would be led in songs through the Psalms in their worship. And those psalms, uh, worship songs, would be overheard by the nations. And I'll, I'll show you in just a few moments how that, that would be the case. But every time it talks about the nations, the nations this, the nations that, it's doing it in a way that it expects the nations to actually hear the Israelites talking about them. That it should be 
worship and praise that's done within earshot of the nations. It's designed to work that way. And, and you see part of that design when the temple is built. So Israel gets established well enough that it moves from worshiping in a tent called a tabernacle to, uh, to worshiping in a temple, a building that God has Solomon uh, erect. And so Solomon is praying about the temple, and he's praying a series of prayers. And in one of those prayers, he just prays this really crazy, audacious prayer. He says, as people come from the nations to come and see the wonder of this temple, as they're approaching it, as they're in procession approaching it, and they bow down to you toward the temple, and they bow down and they pray, Solomon says, answer, give them whatever they ask for. <laughs> That's Solomon's prayer. Uh, it may not be the wisest prayer, I don't know, <laughs> although he was known for his wisdom, but he says, give them whatever they ask for. So the design is that people are going to be coming. Solomon knows that people are going to be coming. And when they come, they're going to be witnessing to the nations about their God. And so one of those Psalms is Psalm 96. Look at the first three verses. This is, this is calling Israel to worship in a way that the nations overhear. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. It's calling Israel in this, this psalm of worship. It's calling Israel to pray within, to, to worship within earshot of the nations. But it even goes further than that because it actually, as they're singing, they begin, God begins to address the nations themselves who are within earshot. And so look at verse 7. It says, Ascribe to the Lord all you families of the nations. So now it's speaking specifically to the nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. So it even calls the nations who come to over here to go back and to spread the word. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns, the world is firmly established, it cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Now, Jesus picks up on this theme. And so, there's a famous passage in Mark chapter 11, where Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables. And he says, you have turned, he, he accuses the religious leaders of turning the temple into a den of thieves instead of what it was intended for, to be a house of prayer for the nations. A house of prayer for the nations. The temple, a house of prayer for the nations. Now, we're accustomed, until we get out of the custom, and, and uh, hopefully we're all growing in that, we're accustomed to thinking that Jesus just makes this stuff up out of the air. And of course, he can do that. He, he can make things up right from the air. But Jesus is always talking within, within a story a story that he himself has been weaving. And so when he says that, you know, the question we should have when we read that is, a house of prayer for all the nations. Did the Israelites know that? You know, is he hitting them with some new information that, that they should have known somehow instinctively? Uh, or is he just made, you know, has he just declared something new? Don't you realize this was always intended to be this way, even though we never told you that? No, the Israelites knew that very well. They knew exactly what he was talking about. Um, the, and, and part of the reason we know that they knew exactly what he was talking about is because this theme runs through the whole scripture and they studied it so carefully. But also because when the temple was rebuilt, there was actually a courtyard that was built onto the temple that was called the court of the, of the Gentiles. And, and the whole idea was that they would come, when they came to the temple, there would be a place to invite them to where they could come and overhear and even see part of the worship that the Israelites were expressing. Um, they understood exactly what he was talking about because worship was always to be part of the way that the nations would be won over to the God of Israel. So when my friend Mike showed up at that worship service, 
He was, in a very real sense, one of the people from the nations who doesn't know the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, the God that Jesus, uh, Jesus, God the Son, and the God that Jesus talked about. But why was he there? Well, he was there because uh, one of the members uh, of that church, uh, a guy named Larry, had hired Mike uh, to take care of a case for him. So Mike was a workman's compensation lawyer. Uh, Larry's son, grown son, had died in a workplace accident. And Mike was representing him. And there was a day when, when Larry had to sign some papers and Mike invited him over to his house. He said, Larry, why don't you just come over to my house? We'll sign the papers and, and, uh, and take care of it that way. I have them there. So, so Larry came. They signed all the papers. They leave uh, his home office. They're walking out. Ruth, Mike's wife, walks into the room. And Mike does the introductions to each other. And while they're talking... Larry notices a picture of Mike and Ruth's son, young son. And he looks at the picture, and he says, Mike, don't ever neglect the spiritual needs of your son. My, I know, my son died, but I know where my son is, and I'm going to join him someday. And you need that for your life. Now, Mike is a, is a committed, avowed agnostic thought in his mind, he told me, Oh, brother. You know, says, oh, brother. You know, let me get him out of here as quickly as possible. So he ushers him out the door, and he turns around. He comes back in, and he looks at his wife, and his wife has tears just coming down her face. So Mike's wife was someone who had grown up in the church. She considered herself a Christian. Uh, she still considered herself a Christian. But in marrying Mike, she, you know, her faith had basically become derailed. She no longer attended any church. She no longer really prayed, read her Bible. She had never taken their son to any church. And, and she told uh, Mike, she says, that, that, ends, that ends now. Uh, we're going, we're going, I'm going to church on Sunday. I'm taking our son, and you're coming with me because I don't want to be there alone. And uh, Mike obeyed. <laughs> um, she gave him the option of picking the church. And so he said he looked for the closest church in the neighborhoods around where they lived. That was big. So he could be anonymous. So he picked the biggest church he could find. And he, he, um, the, he goes, they leave the house in time to get there just in time. Because he didn't want to be there early and someone talked to him. And so he comes in, and when he comes in, he finds that the worship center is completely full, almost completely full. And he's like, oh, and he has to sit on the second row, right by the door, where the wire, uh, choir comes in. So much for being uh, anonymous. His plan is, it's going to be harder to get out of here without having to talk to anybody but as soon as this service is over, I'm getting out of here as quick as I can. But what happened next really shook him and created the situation where he was white-knuckling it and sweating it through a good part of that service. Now, here you have an avowed atheist in a, or agnostic in a worship service. Uh, and in this case, he's there because his wife insisted that he be there. Now, he did it uh, to appease his wife, I would suppose, watching her reaction. He maybe out of guilt for uh, his part in derailing her faith. You know, who knows what was really going on through his head. But I doubt he would have ever gone again if not for what happened next, which I'll tell you in a few minutes. Uh, let's get back to the Bible story. So, the people of Israel understood their commission. They didn't always carry it out that well. Neither has the church. Very clear commission by Jesus. We're not very good at carrying it out. Somehow, God has done incredible things throughout the world in spite of us. Uh, but you'd be wrong if you thought that Israel was a dismal failure at carrying out their, their commission. They weren't. So uh, just a little bit after the time of Jesus, there was a historian who would have been alive in the time of Jesus, but a Jewish historian who wrote 
a history of the Jews, and he wrote it for the Romans. A long story about how that happened, but his name is Josephus. And uh, as part of his history of the people of Israel, as he comes to com more contemporary times, uh, he talks about the synagogues in the city of Antioch, the, si the, the capital of Syria, and the third largest city at that time in the Roman Empire. And this is what he says about those synagogues. He says, the Jewish colony in Antioch grew in numbers. They were constantly attracting to their religious ceremonies multitudes of Greeks, and these the Jews had in some measure incorporated with themselves. So that, in some measure, he's talking about through conversion, but not just that. There was kind of a status given to some non-Jews uh, that gave them some access, but not total access, if they weren't quite ready, the men, to get circumcised and go all in with, the, um, with their identification with Israel, uh, sometimes called God-fearers, who hung around uh, the synagogues. And Josephus is saying they were actually pretty successful at reaching a lot of people. Now, when Jesus was still a young man in AD 19, uh, the emperor at that point of the Roman Empire expelled the Jews temporarily for several years. He expelled them from Rome. And there are four surviving histories written by Roman historians that say what the problem was. And the one that is clearest is this next one, this Cassius Dio. He says, as the Jews had flocked to Rome in great numbers and were converting many of the natives to their ways, the emperor banished most of them. In other words, they understood their commission. And they were carrying out their commission. And they were being persecuted for carrying out their commission. Now, if you know this, it helps you better understand something that happens consistently throughout the book of Acts in the New Testament as it tells the history of the growth of the church. Because the Apostle Paul goes into uh, Roman cities, and he, the first thing he does is he finds a synagogue. If you can't find a synagogue, then he finds where Jews gather for prayer on the Sabbath. But on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue, and as is the custom, as a visiting uh, Jewish person and a person who had been actually trained as a Pharisee and was, uh, had been a Pharisee, uh, he is invited to give a word. And when he would give a word, he would begin to preach the gospel. He would say the story of God. He would take them, rehearse it, the whole story of God, and show that Jesus had come in fulfillment of everything that they'd been waiting for. All right, so one example of this uh, is in Acts 13, where it says, he's invited to speak and says, standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and he said, fellow Israelites and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. He's in a synagogue. And the text explicitly says, he said, you Israelites and you Gentiles. So in the synagogue are Israelites and so are Gentiles. It also explains other places where it's not quite this explicit, where Paul goes into a synagogue he preaches the gospel, he leaves and starts a church, and the church that he starts is filled with Jews who believe, like he does, that Jesus is the Messiah, and Gentiles who had been drawn to Judaism. And so he immediately begins with a church of Jews and Gentiles. And you see this over and over and over again because the Israelites understood their commission. Now, what happens when Paul plants a church? He goes into a city, he preaches in the synagogue, Jews and Gentiles come and follow Jesus. He, plant, he starts a church, and when he starts a church, he stops going to the synagogue. Uh, they begin to invite their friends and witness for God among their relational networks, their work networks. You see the Apostle Paul, if you understand what he did for work, and then you see all the people that he, in, in the book of Acts and then Romans 16, and 1 Corinthians, at the end of 1 Corinthians, all the people that he interacted with, they were all travelers. They were all people who traveled in business. And he, and he was a guy who made tents for them <laughs> and, um, and other gear for them to use for their travels. And so you see that, that Paul and the Christians, they're working in their, their uh, vocational networks, their other networks, uh, to bring people to a relationship with Christ. So... In a very real sense, and just looking at it just from a purely historical standpoint, the first century church spread quickly 
thanks to the groundwork laid by the synagogues. A lot of Christians are unaware of that, uh, that the groundwork was laid by the synagogues. They had been a city on a hill attracting the nations to come and see, and many had stayed and had followed God. So when Jesus gives the Great Commission, what's the new element? The new element is go. The new element is go. The Jews are throughout the Roman Empire not because of go. They're there because of business reasons. They're there because of exile, all kinds of things like that. But Jesus says, I want you to go. Go to all the nations. But he never cancels the whole idea of reaching people through worship. Never cancels that. And in fact, you see it at work in the story of God. You see it in the New Testament. One of the places where it's most clearly seen is in 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul is talking about the worship abuses of the Corinthians. Now, I don't want you to get caught up in the details of this passage, but I want you to see the dynamic of what's happening in that church. So, if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, which is ecstatic speech, spirit-inspired ecstatic speech, and inquires, uh, and inquires or unbelievers come in, Will they not say that you are out of your mind? So he's concerned about people who are in choirs coming into the worship service, not understanding a word, watching how they're, they're, they're worshiping together, and go, these people, they're out of their mind. He ha- he, that is an issue for him. But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, which is spoken intelligible speech, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. He's describing what actually happens on the ground in churches in his day. Unbelievers come in, they see the worship, and sometimes they fall on their faces worshiping God, Um, like Mike, in his house, kneeling in his basement two days later after going to this worship service and receiving Christ. They get worshiped into the kingdom. That's a thread that runs through the Bible and has huge implications. And the implications are oftentimes missed because the thread is missed. In recent decades, Uh, Some have argued for something that nobody had argued for uh, in the history of the church for the most part, which is uh, because of the Great Commission, we ought to make our churches for, specifically for, strictly for seekers, make it all about seekers. Uh, That's not the model that the Scripture gives, and uh, it's an experiment, and we'll see if they're, you know, how the experiment works generationally as time goes goes by because it has the potential of having some, some great deficits. A service of worship in the Word attracts seekers, people genuinely looking for Christ. It does it all the time, and it does it everywhere. A person who's really seeking and goes into a church isn't expecting, most of the time, isn't expecting to actually understand everything. They know that they're at a deficit. They, they know that, you know, they're going to be talking about the Bible. I don't know anything about the Bible. I'm going to be a little lost until I find something out about the Bible. But I'm here. I'm here to learn. I, I, want, to, I want to find out if this is true. Uh, so, uh, Pastor J.T. English has written a book called Deep Discipleship. And he, said, he says in that book, he says, a, a church can lower the bar so far to be accessible to the seeker that sometimes the church no longer uh, reflects biblical teaching and priorities. That can happen. Uh, what can happen is, it, is that a church can bring everybody into knee-deep waters and then leave them there when God actually wants them to learn to swim and to be able to dive down deep. So a church can... Um, so, so something that, that, that I would say coming out of that would be this. We have to intentionally and consistently create and execute plans to help those genuine seekers and those that are early in the Christian journey who are in the shallows to learn to swim. I mean, our story of God course is one of the ways that we do this, but hopefully even in all of our small groups and in personal relationships and mentoring 
uh, we're, we're doing this for each other. But a church also needs to learn to swim. They also need to learn to swim. They need to move into the deep, fully equipped to dive deep, not to just remain kind of on the surface, kind of um, just swimming there on the surface, afraid to go down. It's challenging to do this. It's really challenging to do both, to help the person who's seeking, to help the person at the beginning of their journey, and at the same time to take other people deep. But it's a challenge that hopefully churches are up to, and, and, and one that through the help of God and the Holy Spirit, we try to meet that challenge. So let me finish Mike's story. Mike and his family are sitting on the second row, right by the door where the choir comes in. And as the service starts, the choir comes in, and in that choir is Larry. <laughs> uh, total surprise. There's Larry who told him, uh, you know, pay attention to your son's spiritual needs. And so that kind of begins something in him. He participates or he watches, basically. He observes the worship of God's people, the songs being sung. He uh, observes communion being taken. He observes um, the sermon. He listens to the sermon. He observes as the congregation is attentive to what's being taught from the Word of God. And it, it impacts him. He's gotten emotional. And all he can think is, I just got to get out of here as quickly as possible. It's, you know, it's worked some magic on me, and I'm feeling really emotional, uh, but I am not going to succumb to this. As soon as I get out of here, I can get my wits back, and I'll be okay. And I can go on <laughs> being agnostic. And, uh, and so uh, the pastor does something that he didn't do regularly, so much so that in my nine, eight years at that church, I never saw him do. And Mike went and asked the pastor one time, is this something you used to do a lot? He goes, oh, I don't remember ever doing it. He goes, well, you did it the first time I came. So they're singing the closing hymn, and the pastor says, hey, I want to sing one more verse because I think there might be someone here who needs to respond. So he had invited people uh, at that church. They had people up front here who would meet with anybody who wanted to become a member, who would meet with anybody who wanted to get baptized, uh, we meet with people who wanted to just prayer or to receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Gene, the pastor, said, I just think we should sing one more hymn. There might be someone who's just kind of holding back. And Mike's like, no way. And he's like white-knuckling it at this point. He is not going to go forward. And he didn't. And he got out of there, and he gets in the car, and he waits for his family. And they get in the car, and he goes home. And he's like, Phew. Tuesday morning, he's watching, or Tuesday day, he's watching uh, channel surfing in his basement. And up comes Billy Graham, and he does something he's never done before. He decides to watch. <laughs> and by the end of the Billy Graham service on TV, he gets on his knees, and he prays, and he puts his faith in Christ to be his Lord and Savior, and, um, and receives Christ. So I told this story, some of you may have, uh, it may have sounded familiar to you because I told it back in 2014. And 2014, when I was going to tell it, I had lost touch with Mike. The last time I had seen him was just before I came here in 97, in the fall of 96. I had taken my boys uh, to the state capitol. Mike was serving at that point as our state senator, and he gave them a tour of the capital and introduced us to some people. It was a lot of fun and it was a great lesson in uh, civic involvement and all that for, for my boys. That was the last time I had seen them. And when I, in 2014, when I told the story, I decided, hey, I'm, I'm going to look him up on Facebook, see if we can reconnect. And I found out he had died in 2010. And um, here's the thing. Mike is today with the Lord Jesus waiting for his family someday to join him. And it was because of Larry, and it was because of those people in that congregation worshiping together. We get to be a part of that. We get to be. That's what this whole series is about, recapturing the world. We get to belong to the church as messy as it is and as messy as we are. We get to belong to the church. We get to welcome others into the church. We get to gather together. 
because we need, we need physical gathering together because we're not just thinking things. We're not just, as we talked about last week, brains on a stick. We get to do that. And we get to participate in this epic drama of witnessing to people who are far from God through our worship. We get to help them then learn to swim and learn to go deep in the things of God. They come, they see, they feel, they hear, they think, and they put their faith in Christ. This is what the BLESS campaign is all about. It's about being a church that's here for the world, blessing them about what happens because of that, and about being here for, as uh, Mike and Stephanie said many times, being there for future generations. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to be part of the church, that we belong to you. Thank you for your love and grace that has drawn us into a relationship with you. Thank you for the people who went before us that made it possible for us to hear the message of the gospel and respond, to hear about you and to have a relationship with you, a personal relationship. Father, I pray for anyone here today who, like Mike, is just not not really buying in, but maybe today they understand it better. I pray that you would help them to take a step closer to you and some to even begin a relationship with you by putting their faith in you and in you alone for their salvation, for their life, for their future, that you would be their God and their Lord, their leader in their life. Help us to live more and more as if that grace really matters to us and that being a church is important to us, to be your bride, your body. Help us to live more into that every single day. Pray this in Jesus' name.